last about three weeks. It will be a cycle of three lectures, continuation from each other, in which I intend, after I described the metaphysical, spiritual principles of yoga, after I spoke about what tantric yoga is, because you are here in a school of tantric yoga, and you need to understand what it is all about. And after last time I spoke about what is Agama Yoga, what do we have in this school, what kind of yoga, what kind of methods, what can you study. <clears throat> I thought about resuming an old subject, I think I probably lectured about it some five, six years ago, and I want to elaborate on it. We call it, I call it yoga in daily life for a very special reason. And um, basically, it starts from the fact that, as you know, we divide, we divide yoga in um, four different headlines that we made, we do yoga for the physical body and for issues related with health. Some people are here doing yoga for that, or because they want to learn yoga for healing purposes. Some people want to study yoga, and they want to be very good in yoga, very good at yoga, because they want to use it in their daily lives. Like they want to continue living the life which they live. They are satisfied with the life which they live, but they know that yoga can give them 25% extra in this life, and therefore yoga can make things very cool for them. And there are people who study yoga because they are interested in paranormal phenomena, so such people want to levitate or to see auras or to perform astral projection or other paranormal phenomena. And there are people who do yoga because of some fundamental answers. There are people who do yoga because of the spiritual part of yoga. They want to find out who they are, why they live on planet Earth, what's the meaning of all this, and all those super essential questions. Whenever we do hear lectures, we address sometimes health and healing. Sometimes we address spiritual issues very often because that's one of the tops of yoga. Sometimes we speak about paranormal phenomena, either if we speak about anecdotal stories or we think about, we speak about some of the energy phenomena that we have in yoga. But very seldom do we speak about how does yoga blend with daily life. If you go at the level of the fundamentalists of yoga, or if you go at the level of the extremists of yoga, of course yoga is nothing for the daily life. Like, what is the daily life of Ramakrishna? Ramakrishna slept two hours per night. He spent approximately 20 hours per day with the disciples, with the people. He basically had two hours per day where he was not with people, and two hours where he slept. And in those 20 hours, he kept on talking to people, he kept on singing kirtans and bhajans, 
he kept on giving instruction starting from early morning and finishing to late night that man was living a life of spiritual activity so what yoga in daily life did Ramakrishna do the daily life of Ramakrishna was yoga from morning till night he was a yoga teacher a yoga master what yoga in daily life like Ramakrishna did not apply yoga when going to do his laundry because he was not doing his laundry somebody else was doing it for him and Ramakrishna did not have a time in his day allotted for cooking or for doing laundry or for what was the daily life yoga in daily life for Milarepa Milarepa lived for 30 years in a cave he ate stinging nettles from the hill slopes until his skin was turning greenish in color because of eating exclusively just some chlorophyll herbs what's the yoga in daily life because the daily life of Milarepa was yoga from morning till evening and therefore in the moment when we speak about yoga in daily life we are talking about people for whom the daily life is at least 50% of their lives the daily life is by definition then meaning something which is outside of yoga like daily life means that you have a family you have children you have friends you are going to parties um, there is now and then a funeral besides the parties you are going to your job you are going to a cinema to watch a movie you are having a daily life and the question then is is that daily life related to yoga or not sometimes in the first level I tell to people there are people who do yoga and I mean that gymnastic contortionistic mechanical yoga they do yoga but they are not yogis so yoga in daily life the very concept of yoga in daily life means that there exists a person who has a daily life first of all a life in the society a life among the events of the world we're not talking about people living in a monastery as hermits or people doing full-time yoga from morning till evening and these people who are having a daily life they are so impressed by the wisdom of yoga by the power of yoga by the balance by the harmony of yoga that they would like to bring some of that in their daily life a simple example which comes to mind is that some of you after you participate to a one-month course here in Kopangan you become vegetarian there are many people who came to Agama and after one month or after two weeks they decided to be vegetarian that is a bit of a yoga in daily life because then when you go to Bangkok or when you go to Paris you're looking for vegetarian food your daily life is conditioned by yoga while I was in yoga I decided that I don't want to have animals killed in my name and I eating them I don't want to live my life like that I can live my life without any animal being killed in my name <clears throat> and then I am doing how am I putting that in my life that affects my daily life even if I am a person who does a certain amount of yoga a certain amount of daily activity profane activity it's impossible that these two things do not fertilize each other 
it's impossible that there is not an impregnation of one through the other. There are people who do business, just as business, and then there are people who do business in a moral and ethical way. Like they would not buy coffee from Ethiopia because children are used to crop that coffee and it is coming from, so it's non-ethical to buy coffee from that country. From There are people who care about this because they care about morality and ethics. And of course, not only the yogis care about morality and ethics, the people can be Buddhist or Christian or in other traditions. And then that thing is influencing their daily life. It influences the way they are doing business. It influences a lot of other things from their lives. That's why yoga in daily life, on one hand, it talks about this, that yoga is not a dead thing which you do two hours in a hall and then all the other 22 hours are not touched by it. Even if you did the first level of agama, you know that there is yoga which is done when you make love. You know that there is yoga which is done while you sleep or fall asleep and dream. There is yoga which is done when you are having moments where you are waiting and you can close your eyes and concentrate your mind. There, is, there are applications of yoga while you are eating, while you are drinking liquids. And the list could continue enormously. And this is the beauty of yoga that some people do it exactly for the daily life and they don't feel guilty that they have a daily life besides yoga. And, of course, here it's a matter of the angle under which we see these things. Because we can say that for some people like Milarepa and Rumi, spirituality was their daily life. They lived it 24-7. But on the other hand, we can say that Mahatma Gandhi, who liked yoga was initiated in many yoga lineages, practiced yoga to a certain extent. He was very fond of purifications, fasting, diets, detoxes, as one of the most, the biggest things in yoga which he liked. And we can say that a man like Mahatma Gandhi spent one hour per day spinning wool. He was just manually spinning wool, which then was used for textile industry, and so on, because he wanted to set an example. So Mahatma Gandhi was doing social activity with his thought being to yoga, with his thought being like, how can I transform life into a spiritual life? Okay, I'm not standing on my head. I'm marching for the right of the Indian citizens to have their own access to salt, because the British government had put a monopoly on salt. As today, private companies are putting monopoly on the water that you drink, on all sorts of things which we take for granted. There are great capitalistic consortiums which take them from the normal people. It happened in India, but it didn't fly. It didn't fly because Mahatma Gandhi stood up and he said, I'm going to go and pick me myself a piece of salt from the seashore. And if you want to beat me or shoot me for it, go ahead. We are going to die by the tens of thousands, but we are not going to give up the right that the salt belongs to us. It doesn't belong to any British company who just, even if it was a Hindu, Indian company, still it can't belong to them, the right to have the salt which God has left on the 
beaches of India. Therefore, this activity of Mahatma Gandhi, which we call Karma Yoga, this Karma Yoga, this social activism of Mahatma Gandhi, it was yoga in daily life. For example, when he marched for salt, he simply said, we are going to act according to the principles of yoga, out of which the first is ahimsa, non-violence. And he simply said, I am going to march for salt, but I will not do violence. Violence will be done against me, and I will not answer with violence to that. That is why I'm saying here that this yoga in daily life is a very interesting concept, because there are people who manage to practice technical yoga, 8 hours per day, 10 hours per day, 12 hours per day, they basically sleep, eat, and do yoga. That's all they do all day long. And those are people like Milarepa and like the likes of them. And then there are people who, instead of doing technical yoga, they do simply living yoga. Like their own life, their own movements, their own presence, their own existence is a tribute to yoga. And thus, yoga in daily life, again and again, is a very powerful concept. It's a concept which has been made uh, ridicule by the fact that modern yoga is mostly a fitness industry and the stretching and the gymnastics. And when yoga is about stretching your hamstrings, like what is yoga in daily life? When you go to a shopping mall, what's the function of the yoga which you did to this morning, in, except of the fact that you are looking sexy, because you are fit, because you did yoga. But, okay, that's a sort of a yoga in daily life, but it's not really a yoga, you are not doing anything. So, people who have transformed yoga into gymnastics and fitness, they completely lost this dimension of yoga. That yoga is something which pervades the daily life of a yogi. When you are a yogi in the yoga hall, you are a yogi outside of the yoga hall as well, willy-nilly, if you are impregnated by the spirit of yoga. And that's why this term of yoga in the daily life is very beautiful because it speaks about an integral yoga. Sri Aurobindo who had a very tantric way of thinking about yoga, a very, he called his yoga integral yoga, purna yoga. Sri Aurobindo was of the opinion that you do yoga even if you go to a cafe and read a book. Reading a book in a certain way, even on the terrace of a cafe, is a yoga if you are a yogi. For a yogi, everything is yoga one way or another because you are accumulating experience, it is enriching yourself, and you even use the events of the daily life for evolution. There, was, there, are, there were great yogis who said that the greatest test for a yogi is the daily life. Like you can say, I'm doing yoga, I can put my legs behind my neck, I can hold my breath for three minutes and a half, I can do this, I can do that. If you go in the nearby village and you turn into an alcoholic, then your yoga was worth nothing. The pub in the village was your ultimate test. Life is the strongest test possible. 
you are a yogi, depending very much on the way you connect with the daily life. The daily life is the measure of a yogi from this standpoint. And that's why this concept of blending daily life with yoga is a concept which on one hand allows us to test ourselves if we have a holistic, integral um, vision of life, a tantric vision of life, and on the other hand it allows us to do things from life into yoga. So even if we don't do 10 hours of technical yoga per day, nevertheless a lot of things from the daily life, they become yoga. And of course... There is the story of the time crisis. Many people are accusing we live in Kali Yuga and we need to put bread and butter on our table and this automatically makes that we have an eight-hour job and we have two-hour commuting and shopping and God knows what else. So in a life like this, where your emotions are going up and down and so on, how can you do yoga like they did a thousand years ago? Where are the Milarepas and the Ramakrishnas of yoga, the people who could do their life yoga? Even our colleagues from the monastery just around here, they are basically begging their food in the morning. They have food, they have roof, they have clothing. They theoretically can do Buddhism from morning till evening. Exception made of a couple of hours, two, three, four hours per day, which are dedicated to eating, washing, and other administrative chores, these people have no job, no family, no obligations of any kind. They can dedicate about 12 hours per day to their spiritual practice, to meditate. It doesn't mean that they all do 12 hours per day, because it's a well-known thing that people in the monasteries are tamasic and lazy, and actually they use the roof and the shelter for just lingering. But theoretically, that was the thought of the Buddha, and that was the thought of the people who created Christian monasteries and Sufi dargas and other such institutions, that people there find an oasis from the obligations of the world, and there they can consecrate themselves to yoga. In Pangan, in Agama, it's a little bit of the same. There are a few people who have jobs, they do karma yoga, they do other things. There are many people who have come here 8,000 kilometers, 10,000 kilometers or more, and then you find out that they don't have time to practice their yoga. You ask them, did you practice at least two hours of yoga per day? And then they find, you find out that they were busy. For somebody who has lived in this island for 13 years, I can legitimately ask, what the heck can you be busy with? in this because I met people who came and after a week they ran away saying it's a really, really, really boring place and there is nothing to do in this island. How on earth can people keep themselves busy in Kopangan? It's a great mystery because it's ultimately it's a boring place and the only thing which you ought to do is stand on your head and do your pranayama because that's why you spend the money and the time and the airplane tickets and everything to come here. But no. People are not transforming their life into a yoga so easily. And that's why we say that there is a time crisis, there are dead moments, and we are wasting time. And that's why the yogis have always asked themselves, what can you do in the daily life? So one reason also for talking about yoga in daily life 
is this, re is this need to use the time efficiently because, as they say, life is short, the subject is vast. That's what Yoga Swami, a Sri Lankan yogi, used to say. And um, again, the other one was, as I said, to apply yoga in the daily life. If you don't do 20, 12 hours of yoga per day, then at least in the hours where you don't do yoga, are you still a yogi? And then we demonstrate that we are not just theoreticians and giving lip service. We uh, demonstrate that actually we are yogis. Of course, what I'm saying here about yoga in daily life, what I'm going to say in this series of lectures and the examples which I'm going to give, these are things which are for people who know the basics of yoga. If any one of you here is right now taking the first level of yoga in Agama, many of the things which I'm going to say here are going to sound like they are above your head. They are too esoteric for you. Uh, don't worry, these things can be studied, they can be learned, they can be assimilated. It's impossible for us to teach the basics of yoga even in a month or two or even three. And because of that, um, some of these things are still on your to-do list and some of these things you are going to understand at least as possibility. That simply says if you don't feel your chakras, if you don't feel your prana, your energy, then maybe some of these things are still in the field of theory for you because you can use these skills exceptionally in the daily life, but... you need to have some of these basic skills. In my life, I've seen people who, although they did not have the supreme discipline of doing yoga a lot, because there is a discipline in doing yoga a lot, and you know it. You maybe have some friends or acquaintances in the school that you know that they are practicing meditation or asanas or pranayama a lot. And then, on the other hand, to do yoga, to, to expand yoga in your daily life, as I said, I knew people that all the time they tried to do something. Okay, they could not do hatha yoga more than two hours per day or four hours per day. But then as you go, you go in the subway and you see somebody with a very interesting arousing of a chakra in front of you, and you would like to do a bit of samyama to feel the chakra of that person. You go to an office to take a paper, you like some bureaucratic work, some red tape, you have to solve something, and in your peregrination you find a clerk or somebody that has a formidably wonderful Manipura chakra, and who may be a pain in the neck because of that. And still you are going and saying, wow, that's a person with an amazing Manipura chakra. They are a pain in the neck and right now I'm having trouble because of that. But I would like to have such a Manipura. I also would like to have such a Manipura. You are a yogi. You are obsessed by these things all day long. Wherever you go, you find something to do. Because people very often, they on the contrary, they try to forget it is uh, one of the demons of the human behavior. And I'm sorry that I don't have a dancing Shiva here. There is a dancing Shiva, of course, at the Shiva Hall. 
go to that statue in daylight and look carefully. There is uh, the foot of Shiva, the foot of the dancing Shiva is placed on a little creep, on a little ugly little creature, like a deformous midget of some sort. That little creep is the symbol of forgetfulness. Apasmara Purusha, the demon called forgetfulness. Mara, like the Buddhist Mara, like one of the biggest enemies of the human consciousness is forgetfulness. That people, instead of staying focused and saying, okay, I don't have enough willpower right now to start another yoga session and to do another four hours of yoga. It's like it's too much. But if it's too much, it doesn't mean that I have to give up completely and go into forgetfulness. It's like if I cannot win a battle, then I'm running away and let the enemy take over. No, if I cannot win a battle, I move on some defense lines Strategic defense. I cannot win, but I'm not going to run away. I'm going to play defense. It's the same thing here. In your life, you might not have the willpower, the aspiration, the motivation, the self-discipline to do yoga as much as you dream. Everybody who comes to yoga and has aspiration, at some point or another, dreams about becoming the new Milarepa of the 21st century. And of course, very few people do. And therefore, what do the others do? The others say, ah, I'm no Milarepa. Okay, let's go to the pub and get drunk. You don't jump from one extreme to the other. If you cannot be like Milarepa, maybe you can be like a 50% Milarepa. Maybe you can be like a 10% Milarepa. Maybe you can be like a 1% Milarepa. There is still something in it when you do that. Milarepa is one of the giants. Very few people on the surface of this earth can compare to one like Milarepa. Milarepa took an initiation from one of his gurus, and then he brags in his book, he said, I meditated for three months or for 60 days with a lamp on my head. They have a practice in the Tibetan Buddhism that you put an oil lamp, a butter lamp, right on top of your head, like Buddha has that flame. And you put a lamp on your head, and then you meditate. And what's the key? What's the catch? The catch is that if your head goes like this, you lost the oil lamp. So you can't even afford to go like this. Nothing. You have to stand like a statue. And Milarepa did it for 60 days, or 45, or 90. It doesn't matter. Once you've gone beyond two hours, it becomes crazy anyway. No, it's like how many people would put a lamp on their head and count the time. Like, let's see how much I can stay in meditation. Just a day. Just 12 hours if I can stay with a lamp on my head. Almost nobody in this room would do that. That's why I'm saying, not everybody is Milarepa. These people are giants, exemplary giants. But the other people with humbleness, with humility, asking for grace, nevertheless, they can do a great job. They can do a great deal of spiritual work. And that's why... I'm uh, saying, putting yoga in the daily life, I met this. I have met people who as soon as they got out of the yoga, I cannot forget a thing which happened some 30-something years ago. I was making a private yoga class in a home in the communist times in Romania, and there were about six people, and two of the girls, they were talking about some fashion. A dress with some black dots or something like a polka dress. Or something like this. 
And then I'm saying, okay, we start yoga, please focus, eyes closed, attention focused. We do yoga. And after we finish the relaxation, when I say come back slowly, move your fingers, the relaxation is over. There's no more than 10, 20 seconds pass, and one of the two girls turns on her side to the other, who was her, and she says, and as I told you, this polka dress, which I'm not joking, it's literally something which I've seen with my own eyes. Like, I have done my two hours of yoga, now back to the polka dress. Back to that dress. Like, there is... No yoga in your daily life. Yoga is just an isolated event which happens in a window of two hours in the yoga hall. And as soon as you got out of there, you are like a dog for whom you broke the chain, you know. <laughs> Running for freedom like yoga has been the arresting of the movements of the mind. And the mind has gone crazy for two hours and now it wants polka dots and dresses and all that. So... Um, it is very important to understand this. I've seen people who in the daily life, they constantly try to bring yoga. Like, what can I do with yoga? I, I heard the music. Wow, this music has a very beautiful anahata. I'm listening to it. Then I can even go to the person and say, what music is this? I would like to show it to Swami Vivekananda. Maybe we can use it in Agama for some heart chakra meditations. Like this, like I'm hunting music. I'm, you know, like whatever I do, I am an agent of yoga. My yoga is filling up the world. I'm like obsessed with yoga. It's a sweet obsession. And I would dare say, if you are healthy in your mind, it's not a pathological obsession. It's an obsession which simply comes from your love for the invisible, for the esoteric, for the practice, for the evolution. And even if you don't spend four hours per day in Hatha Yoga, still the world around you is an opportunity for yoga. While, as I told you, I met people who are always trying to forget. I met people... We had a workshop many years, some 10 years ago, which we did not repeat, not because of lack of popularity, because it has been extremely popular. We had a workshop on parapsychology, where we were teaching about the energy of the pyramids, radionics, pendulum, practice, and things like this. And I know people who learned that 10 years ago, and they are still using it. They are still working on it. One of them brought me an organ generator built by the principles of Wilhelm Reich, just manufactured in his own home a year or two years ago. No? Like there are people who are keeping it up, who are passionate of this. They are pursuing it in their daily lives. Either it's parapsychology or it's something. You know, it's like we told to people at that time a simple thing. Let me just share an inspirational thing, which could be part of yoga of the daily life. There is a resonance between each person and their photo, especially if it's not a digital photo. With digital photo, the resonance is diminished a lot. We are talking about photos like Polaroid, instant photos, or photos which come from a negative film, the old-fashioned way 10 years ago, and more of making photos. Because those photos, they use a substratum of silver. There is a silver salt, a silver nitrate, which is used among others. So basically when you see a black and white photo of yours or something, it's drawn in silver. There are some silver salts which are part of that. 
because of that, those photos made in the old-fashioned way and the Polaroid photos, the instant photos on paper, they still respect that condition. These photos, they have a resonance with you. And for example, those photos can be used in some sweet ways. Here is a crazy one. You take a gramophone from the old days. These patterphones, which today are almost out of existence. These plate turntables, turn which sometimes are used by disc jockeys and others. And when you have a turntable like this, you can um, program it so that it turns counterclockwise, which is yang. It moves like against the clock. And then you take a turntable, and on top of the turntable, you glue your photo. And then you turn it on. And you have a mechanical device which is going to take your photo and turn it counterclockwise with 33 times per minute, basically. So it turns it thousands of times in a daytime. By turning your photo in a yang way, it is as if you would be turning your body the yang way like a dervish. And it makes you, at least the least of the effects is, that it makes you more yang. So many people in yoga complain, I'm too yin, I'm too yin, I'm too yin. Constantly I want to lie down, I am an apple pie, I have a boiled noodle instead of my spine, I'm flabby, I'm receptive, when it's full moon I freak out, I have no initiative, I cannot generate my own states and so on and all that. Well, you could be more young if you burn your, if you bought yourself a turntable, glued your blessed picture on it, and turn it. You put it in a, in a back room of your house, and let it go in all eternity. How many people do you think are doing this? People are complaining, I don't like the Oshava diet, it's terrible. I did it once and I barely survived. Okay, there is an alternative method. You can, you can spin your photo. How many people are doing it? It's very easy to sleep under a pyramid. You build out of cardboard a 60 centimeter pyramid having the Cheops pyramid proportions. You put it on the axis north-south. You align it with north-south. And you put it like a lamp above your head. And you sleep under it. The energy of the pyramid is an energy which is like the golden yellow in your aura. It's an energy belonging to Ajna Chakra. It's the energy of Shambhala. It's an energy which is highly unanthropic. It's an energy which produces countless healing and beneficial effects. It's going to purify your mind. And that's because you took an effort of four hours to make yourself a cardboard pyramid. To just to glue some card, to cut and glue some cardboard and fold it and make a pyramid out of it. And then it serves you for the next 10 years of your life just by passive. Eight hours per night you sleep under the pyramid. It radiates all your body with young energy. How many people do that? That's why I'm saying, how many people are really obsessed with sucking the marrow out of yoga? Like really understanding the technology of it and then doing simple things. Yoga in daily life. Sleep under a pyramid. That's yoga in daily life. If you understood, it's a help. It gives you a help. How much? Well, if, if a pyramid gives you 5% extra good energy, 
and if a turntable gives you another 5% extra good energy, and if you do five things like that, you are drinking solarized water, put in colorful containers where you drink green water, blue water, orange water, or something. And if you take a bottle of water and write love or enlightenment or samadhi on the bottle and let it stay for two hours or ten hours, and then like Masaru Emoto's thing with water, that you write messages on water, and then you drink only that water instead of drinking some other water, which is amorphous and maybe polluted with God knows what from the public system or something. How many people do that? So that's why I say, uh, the question is, how much do I really want? How much do I really long for these things? How much am I determined to really push? Like, how many things I know and I don't do? Simply because I'm lazy. And how much lazy do you have to be to make a pyramid? There are many people in Agama who are very, very low on their budget. You can put a poster on the pin board and say, I give you a thousand baht if you make me a pyramid 60 centimeters. And then you'll have a slave who will do you a pyramid for money. Because they don't have enough money for their daily bread. So there are people who would work for this. Just if you put a poster and say, I want a pyramid, I want a turntable, I want a Polaroid picture put on it, I want an orgone box. There is an orgone box in the healing center built by some of our, by a Canadian pupil of Agama. What is to go into an orgone box? What does it do to you and what can it do? Maybe among you there are people who are ill. There are people who have little vitality, too little vitality and others. Therefore, I'm saying it's this. Do we really want? Do we really want? Do we really want? Are we burning? Are we burning? Are we burning to do? Or it's like two hours and then polka dots. That's the story. Like, is yoga something that we are trying to get out of? Or is yoga something that we are trying to live 24-7? That's... You have to understand this angle to it, that you have to bring yoga in your life. There are so many things that you learn in yoga and which allow you to understand parapsychology, religion, and other, and other things in life. And then this understanding from yoga, you can use it, and you can use it obsessively. Obsessively. I, I remember... Not only situations where I was meditating in university classes, like I considered that some of the university subjects, they were really dull and boring. When I studied university in communist times, we even studied communist economics, which was bullshit economics, you know, just communistic form of economic science. And of course, I would not listen to a word, that, that workshop, that seminar, it was a total loser from the very beginning. So I would go there and do meditation, plug my ears with toilet paper, close my eyes, and do Laya Yoga for 45 minutes because I was not going to listen to the initiatives of the glorious Communist Party about reforming the economical life, which was a ruin anyway. So, of course you do that, but then you do so many other things. Like I remember I was with my best friend, in high school already, and we had learned about telepathy and mental resonance and things like this, 
And every time there was a class which was not very demanding, we were doing telepathic transmissions. Like we looked at each other, the class was really boring, and we said, let's do some telepathy. And then we took numbers from one to three, and one of them, us, was emitting. Yeah, so we were staying like this, and we say, okay, now you emit. So the person chose a number, one, two, three, and I was trying to see it in front of my eyes to see if I can see what he's transmitting. And then we're making a statistical table, like how many times did you guess? If you guessed 33 times out of 100, that's pure randomity. If you guessed 20 times out of 100, then you must be really stupid. And if you, and if you guessed 80 times out of 100, then that's not randomity anymore. And it's a bit beyond coincidence, you know, especially if tomorrow you can do it again. So I spent many hours in high school, in communistic high school, doing telepathic experiments of thought transmission with a good friend, because that was way more interesting than listening to some of that nonsense which was being said. That, to me, today, when I look back, I know that I wanted to do something. I was burning. I was really interested to do something. I wanted to see. I wanted to feel. I wanted to reach certain things. And that's what I'm talking about, yoga in daily life, how to bring these skills from yoga in daily life. And of course, um, one of the ways which I found to describe yoga in daily life uh, was first to focus on a typical day, and I suppose I'm going to go through that tonight, and then of course getting out of a typical day, going to the different activities of life, like when you have R&R, rest and recreation, or if you are attending a funeral, or whatever circumstances that appear in your life, what from yoga can you do which will have beneficial effects on you and on the rest of the world. That's why I'm going to start gently with an imaginary day. Our imaginary yogi, Walter, wakes up in the morning, and where does yoga come in the routine of the day? I'm going to perhaps talk about, surely talk about a person that has a job. So a person who wakes up in the morning, prepares for a job, goes to a job, and all that. So let's take them a little bit in order, things which could be done, and then when you do them, you say, gosh, there are 120 things, you know, it's like my life would become like a manic, obsessive thing. Yes, then you are not doing 12 hours of Hatha Yoga and meditation, but you are seeking for the mystery everywhere. You are a seeker of the invisible, of the spiritual, of the transcendental. So things which you can do starting with the morning. First thing in the morning, you kind of wake up. You semi-wake up or fully wake up, whichever way it is, like you have an alarm clock or not, or what it is. First thing which crosses your mind as a yogi would be the remembrance of the dreams. If you learned about Nidra Yoga, you don't immediately come out. Of course, if you have to catch a train or a ferry boat or something, those are exceptional circumstances. But if you have those five minutes, first thing which you do, you sit up or you put yourself in a more lucid position, close your eyes and start remembering as much of your dreams as you can. Remembering your dreams is going to open the door between the conscious and the subconscious, 
and it's going to make your remembrance of dreams bigger and bigger from one day to the next. So it's a practice which is collateral to Nidra Yoga. You want your Nidra Yoga to develop, the least which you can do is start remembering your dreams, even have a dream notebook and write them down. Another thing that can be done is positive self-suggestion. When you are in the twilight zone, your subconscious mind and conscious mind are still communicating, and therefore you could put some positive self-suggestion. Even if you take the elementary one, taught in so many places, even we are having fun with it in the TYTTC, every day and every way, I feel better and better. Repeat that a hundred times, instead of saying, uh, another shitty day is starting. Right? That's the worst the way to start the day. Instead of sitting up, close your eyes, you are still dizzy, half asleep, half dreaming, and you start saying, every day and every way I feel better and better, yes. Every day and every way I feel better and better, yes. Why not put some positive self-suggestion when we receive so much negative self-suggestion and we need to compensate for it? Another thing that you would do is the consecration of, a, of the day. There are people who are in love with consecration. There are people who are in love with the idea of karma yoga. And the first thing which they do, they say, now I start a new day. I would like from the minute number one to give this day to God. This is God's day. God, I give you my day. My day belongs to you. Whatever happens in this day is yours. I offer you all my day. What's wrong with that? Why would that be a bad idea? It's not a bad idea in any way. Some people in some religions start the day with the morning prayers. They do prayers in the morning. Maybe you are not a great believer in prayers. And here in Agama, we are not doing, we haven't been doing until now so much of this bhakti yoga, prayer environment and so on. This season we are going to have the Bhakti Yoga Retreat, which is a premiere, and I hope you will enjoy the energy, the anahata, the devotion of it, but at least a consecration can be done. Then, of course, in the morning, you start doing Kriya Yoga. You start with the four or five morning Kriyas. Here in Agama, we teach people a set of four simple Kriyas, some people want to add to it, Vamana Dauti, which I have always the surprise that some of the yoga teachers tell me. I have been to the seventh level, I've been teaching the seventh level of Agama, and I had the incredible surprise that only one person out of 15 had ever done Vamana Dauti. It's like, why do we teach it in the level one, in the day 10 or 11 or whatever it is? It's funny. It's one of the very, very effective Kriyas. Many people don't even bother to try it for a couple of weeks to see what it does to the human being. While we have people who integrate it even during their morning Kriyas. Morning Kriyas, then if you are a bit more advanced in yoga, you know that when you pee, and I have to be crudely technical on this one, there, is, there are some shudders of energy moving through your body. Everybody remembers that when you pee, if you squeeze your muscles, then suddenly you get this dog-like reaction that something goes through your spine. For the connoisseurs, 
that dog-like reaction is related with a movement of Kundalini called Shakti Chalana, and it can be used. I met, I remember, I have seen the letter of a guru of yoga, of one of my gurus, to someone else, where he said, do you at least remember when you go to the toilet to do some Shakti Chalana? Like, life is sacred if you do sacred acts all the time in it. That's the problem. Does your monkey mind want to do sacred acts? Or you want to talk about the polka dots? 22 hours out of 24. So this is where the difference is. For those of you who are diehards, you have the explanations about urine therapy. Usually the morning, together with the morning kriyas, is the perfect environment for those who want to test this traditional healing method, which for some can have formidable effects in special circumstances. Let's say you finished with the morning routines. This is just the minutes after you wake up, when you wake up and after you wake up. And then pretty quickly, you don't have time to do Hatha Yoga. Let's say you are a person again living with a job and this. There's no Hatha Yoga, but you already did about six yogic acts just before breakfast. And then you get to breakfast. When you do breakfast, there are at least a few things that you can do. For example, you could do a consecration of the act of eating. I remember one of my stern Christian teachers from a monastery, one of the friends of my chiropractic teacher, who was also a very stern monk, he was adamant on this. He said, it is a total shame for people who eat without a prayer or a consecration. He said, what are you, a dog, an animal? You just jump on the food and start binging on it. What does it cost you to stop for a second before you eat and give a great thought to the universe? After all, the universe is feeding you. Plants and animals have died to manufacture that food which is keeping you alive. Your food is a sacrifice from the standpoint of Mother Nature. And it's all to keep you alive. Can't you have at least a thought of gratitude? Can't you at least express thank you for keeping me alive? Thank you, Mother Nature, for keeping me alive. Therefore, he said it shows a, gro- a gross lack of gratitude and it shows a gross lack of awareness that you are eating unconsciously like this. He said every human being should eat consciously. And we can do conscious eating, which is a big thing, like the Buddhist monks are teaching it in Vipassana retreats. Other and other teachers, are spiritual teachers, are teaching it that while you are eating, either you focus on something spiritual, like I've seen monks in monasteries, that while they are eating, somebody is reading with loud voice a spiritual text. And everybody is listening to that spiritual text. They are not talking, they are not chatting, they are eating in silence and meditating on the words of some inspirational text. Or, if not, you can just be in the act of eating, like in the tea ceremony. You are present there in what you do. We can perceive the energy in the food. For example, we can discover 
oh, this food is cooked by the mother of Walter, and she is the most terrible cook in the world. I'm going to get acid in my stomach again. Like, I can perceive the prana in the food. Where does that food come from? Who cooked it? Is it grown up ecologically and healthy? Is it yin? It is yang? And so on and so forth. I remember I had one of my female teachers was very sensitive about food, and she was very sensitive about yin energy, and she simply said, I ate some tomatoes, and after I ate those tomatoes, not five minutes have passed, my tongue was swollen, and I had cracks on the surface of the tongue because of the hormones, because of it. Like, I became very yin by eating those tomatoes. Like, she knew it. She was conscious. She was looking into what she was eating, and she was looking into the effects. She was not eating, doing something else, except if that something else is indeed something worthwhile, like something spiritual. Then let's say our human being starts moving towards their job, and that involves several activities, several alternatives, such as walking. You could be walking to your school when you come to Agama, or to your job, but when you are walking, you can do wonderful things. You can, for example, do conscious walking. And this is where the mental monkey starts freaking out. Because the mental monkey, which is fed up with spirituality, starts coming and saying, Hey, you know what? Give me a break. Like, I want to be forgetful. I want to dilly-dally. I want to do silly things. It drives me insane that I am asked to do disciplined and spiritual things. And that gives you a measure of where your aspiration is and all the other coefficients. Swami Shivananda recommends that while you are walking, unless it's in a very polluted city or something, you should do rhythmic breathing. The most simple rhythmic breathing is four steps in, Four steps out. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two. You are basically doing a simple form of pranayama while you are walking. You are breathing four in, four out. That's pranayama already. It's a simple form. But you can focus on your third eye. You can focus on your heart. <clears throat> so you are walking and walking becomes pranayama. But again, if your mind goes like, give me a break. And why does the mind want a break? We can do, when walking, a concentration on Manipura or on Muladhara. It's a well-known thing that people with a strong Manipura, they walk fast. They, were, they have a big stride and they walk quickly. And people who are Svadhisthanistic, they drag their feet and they are slow and they are lazy. There are people, their friends say, oh, you are always running, stop running. And the guy says, I'm not running. Basically what he says is just, I'm a very Manipura chakra person, and I'm walking with purpose. I don't dilly-dally, it drives me crazy to drag my feet on the asphalt. When I walk, I walk. Because I have no time to waste, I have no time to lose, I'm walking. It's not like I smoked a joint and then I'm walking like, uh, and so on. I'm walking. And therefore, this walking is on Manipura. When you walk fast and determined, 
you develop your Manipura chakra. There are many people in this room who may complain that my Manipura is not strong enough. Guess what? Do some brisk walking every time you come to Agama and go to, from Agama. Walk fast. Never flabby. Always walk like you have a chili up your bum. Bum, 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 bum. Walk, 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 walk. It will develop your Manipura. While you walk, focus on Manipura. It will develop your Manipura. You are doing yoga on the street. You are doing a dynamic yoga. Developing your Manipura. You can also focus on Muladhara. If you are a person with a very poor vitality, you can try to walk barefoot, or you can try to walk with some shoes with natural thin soles, and you are trying to absorb through your feet a lot of telluric energy while you are walking, because you are in contact with the ground. <coughs> it can be the case that as you go to your work, you would be driving. And when you are driving, there are several things which are being developed through driving. For example, excellent quality driving is developing Ajna and Manipura. Like the real good drivers, they are sharp like a tack, sharp, sharp like a diamond. They drive and they know exactly all the distances, everything back forth. They have a special kind of attention which allows them not to be distracted or absent-minded. This is allowing you to have a development of intuition. Driving a car well, especially in a very difficult environment, is a lot of concentration of the mind. Like you cannot afford to turn your head too much and do other things. You have to be focused on what you do. Being focused is being focused. Either you focus on your Vishuddha Chakra or you focus on the traffic and on the car as a focusing. So you can actually do it very well and try to drive from Manipura and from Ajna. There is even a projection of the aura. There are people who do it instinctively, and I have experienced it myself in some situations, that sometimes you notice a danger before you actually see anything. It's like an intuition. It's like you know a fraction of a second in advance, and then you immediately react to it. That is, it's a more advanced thing, but I remember once driving with a yogi in the car, and I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm projecting my aura about 25 meters in front of your car, trying to scope if there is any danger to the driving. Like, that's what he did when he was driven with a car. He just put his attention 25 meters in front, trying to feel ahead of the car itself what was happening. While driving, you may also be careful and study the self-hypnotic effects when you drive on the highway for long distances because of these white lines going like this. It's a well-known thing that some people go into hypnotic trance. So you could actually put yourself deliberately in some self-hypnosis by driving a car. And that self-hypnosis can drive the car better than you do. I remember that some people, when I was a student in yoga uh, in the younger days, somebody was telling to my teacher from that day, he said, I was driving the car and then I realized that I couldn't even remember what I did for the last three kilometers. I just thought about something and I drove the car and I drove it perfectly. 
And the teacher said that's when the subconscious mind takes over, and the subconscious mind is a much better driver than you are, and the only danger is in the moment when you start becoming proud and saying, ha ha, I think I'm a perfect driver. And then the ego comes in the game and spoils the whole thing, because the ego will destroy that wonderful resonance. It is possible to drive, to learn to drive, like under hypnosis. And then you become the best driver in the world, and you can develop skills via driving itself. You may be going to your job in public transportation. And in public transportation, you can do various forms of concentration of the mind. Many people today are using their headphones. You can put headphones with no music and do some Shambhavi Mudra or some Laya Yoga. Or you can actually put some headphones with some music and do some music meditation to your job. Instead of just listening to Lady Gaga activating your Svadhisthana and Manipura aberrantly and foolishly, you could listen to some music on Ajna Chakra or on Vishuddha and put yourself into a higher state of mind. You could practice different forms of immobility. Immobility is a virtue. Many people are restless and they all the time have to do things like this and so on. And that's the mental monkey. You could do like an asana. The asana of standing straight like a pillar. You go in the subway, you catch a bar, and you are practicing that 10 minutes I'm going to stand like a pillar. And I'm going to practice an asana of immobility. The essence of it is immobility. So, you can use the time. You could be going to your job, it's more rare than that, but I still included it here, flying. There are people who are commuting by airplanes. And flying is an excellent opportunity to meditate on the cosmic energy, because you are high up, and to meditate on Anahata Chakra, because you are in the air. You are in the middle of the air element. You are floating on a cushion of air. And therefore, every time you fly, you could actually meditate. I, for one, every time when I use long-range airplanes or something, I always reserve some time during long flights for meditating. It's wonderful to meditate when you are 10,000 meters up in the atmosphere. The energy is very, very different. Then you are getting to a job, the terrible boogeyman called the job. There are jobs that involve physical effort. Like I remember I had pupils in Denmark who were in a packaging facility where they were packaging mail, press, newspapers. They were working in the postal department. And one of the aspects of this job was that they had to lift and carry countless kilos every day. Yeah, but that's also good. It developed their Muladhara Chakra a lot. And also, when you have a lot of physical strength, it develops your Manipura Chakra. There is a novel by Jack London called, I think it's called The Meat or The Bear Meat or something like this. And the essence is about some fellow coming from California and going into the gold rush of Yukon, of Alaska. And in the beginning... He's a total weakling. And in the moment when he starts walking through snow and carrying packages and this, he thinks he's going to die. He thinks he's going to be, and day after day, 
he insists and insists and he learns from the native Indians and he learns from others and slowly, slowly he becomes a monster. He becomes a man with steel muscles, with steel body. He becomes, he can walk all day from morning till evening through the snow and he never gets tired. He steals himself through effort. Some people would say, this job is going to kill me. And some people are going to say, this job is going to make me Arnold Schwarzenegger number two, you know. It's like, I'm going to work out in this job and either I die or I become full of muscles and in an excellent fitness. It's a matter of Manipura. It's a matter of Muladhara. So if you have a job that solicitates you, that challenges you physically, then why not use it instead of being a victim and complaining and trying to run away from it? Why not use it as a challenge? If you are using a bicycle, it's going to develop certain muscles, certain fitness and all that. If you are having a repetitive job, like people working in front of a conveyor belt and doing repetitive acts, this is the kind of job which generates easily astral projection, because you are just sitting there. I hope you remember modern times with Charlie Chaplin, where he is working in front of a conveyor belt, and all he has to do is to, to tighten two screws, one with the left hand and one with the right hand. You know? And after he does it for one hour, he can't stop himself. He just goes around doing like this, and a lot of funny things are happening uh, because of this. That's a sort of automatization of the brain. It generates astral projection, and that can be dangerous. But it also is the opportunity to have a witnessing from Sahasrara, because it's like you fall asleep. The job is so monotonous that it's like you fall asleep. And when you fall asleep... You can just go here and just witness. Your body is like falling asleep and your consciousness is witnessing a rhythmical, mechanical gesture which your body does. The fathers of the desert, they loved mostly this kind of mechanical work, manual, repetitive work. What were they doing in Sinai and those places is that they were weaving baskets. They were weaving straw baskets. They bought a pile of straw and they were making baskets, shopping baskets, out of it. And they did it the whole night, and while they did it, they did constant prayer, constant repetition of mantras. Like your mind is free. When your hands are busy and do something mechanical, you can say, Om Mani Pemehum, Om Mani Pemehum, Om Mani... And you do it eight hours per day. Will it have an effect? It will have an effect. And you can do the mechanical job even with more awareness. There are people who are having intellectual jobs. And in intellectual jobs, you can see if your intellectual job falls under Manipura, like organizational, business, engineering processes, or if it falls under Vishuddha, computer language programming, and other such things, or even Ajna Chakra, some things of intelligence, of creativity, of memory, so you could use an intellectual job as a stimulation. I have known people, when they were going to some of these high intellectual jobs, their Ajna Chakra was humming. It was, you could almost hear their third eye humming. No, like, you go there, why not consciously activate your Ajna Chakra? Then, you can have jobs or activities which are of social nature. 
where you interact with other people. And for example, you can have, you can work on your Svadhisthana for harmonious socialization. If your job is about harmonizing, uh, being into PR, human resources, and a few other things, not completely because in those fields there are others, but one of the chakras which could be used is Svadhisthana. Team building and lots of other things like this, they would come nicely from Svadhisthana. While some people are manifesting anti-social tendencies, you can create socializing tendencies, but nice, clean, based on a good Svadhisthana. Or you could develop your Manipura chakra if you are in a position of leadership. This is the ultimate secret of leadership. If you have a great Manipura chakra, you are a good leader. And if you don't have Manipura chakra, you are a caricature of a leader. You are a fiasco, a flop. And if you try to be a leader with a weak Manipura chakra, you are going to suffer digestive problems, stress, chronic fatigue syndrome, Crohn's disease, stuff like this. Your, your Manipura chakra is going to start falling apart because you are trying to control others when you can't even control yourself. You don't have enough Manipura even for your self-control. And that's why if any one of you is put in the situation of being a leader, that's your excellent opportunity to develop your Manipura chakra. Manipura, Manipura, Manipura. And you do 10 years of leadership job, you come out of that with a huge Manipura. And of course, you work on it in case you don't have it. You feed it. You load your Manipura. You charge it up every morning, every evening, so that you can com be competent for that job. Anahata Chakra can be used for empathy and heart-to-heart -heart contact. Maybe your job is a socializing job which requires a lot of compassion, a lot of heart, and then you can... There are people who would not like it. They would say, oh, I'm going to Mother Teresa, but I hate the children and I had to take care of terminally ill people and work on Anahata Chakra and do it from the heart. And then it will develop. I know people... We had a pupil in the school, when he was in China to some Qigong school, he was doing eight hours of Qigong per day, the horseman stance and so on, that even the Chinese gurus were impressed by the amount of work which this guy was putting into it. And still, he had huge problems on Anahata. His Manipura was good, his Anahata was not. At my advice, he went to Calcutta and he went directly to Mother Teresa and he started working with the terminally ill people. He was, this man had a pretty big Manipura, believe me, if he was doing eight hours of hardcore Qigong per day. He told me in the moment when I entered that ward, it's a barn basically, it's like a hall like this, full of beds with terminally ill people. He said, I almost vomited instantaneously because there are people without arms without legs. There were people that had worms swarming through their wounds. People picked up from the street and just brought, half eaten by worms, by rats, by terminally ill, half dead and so on. And he said, I, with all this Manipura and martial arts, in the moment when I entered there, I started shaking, I paralyzed, and I started walking right forward without looking to the left and the right, seeking for an exit. And he said, I ended in the broom closet. The first door which was in front was the broom closet and I was staying in the broom closet looking at the wall 
and shaking like this. And then an old nurse came and opened the door and she said, I saw you going in the broom closet. He said, you are not the first one. She said, come, I, I will introduce you slowly, slowly to this. That man, after working for one month as a volunteer in Mother Teresa's, his anahata had changed enormously. I, as his teacher, can say that it was one of the periods in his life where he made the biggest progress on anahata. Not by doing the cobra pose, but just by doing karma yoga with people who deserved a lot of compassion. With people who simply broke your heart just to look at them. In the beginning, his Manipura tried to protect him. Like he wouldn't look at people that would break their heart, because that's what we do. When people die, we put lipstick on them and we put them in a funeral home. In the old days in my country, when people died, you put them on a table in your own house. And they stayed in the house and all the family could touch them, talk to them, be with them, spend the night with the dead body, like you did not avoid death. Because death is scaring the shit out of people. That's why you take the body to a funeral home, so you don't see it till the last day. And then you pay a short visit and put a flower on the chest of the dead person and you go quickly. Not like this. Go to Mother Teresa's and see what human life is made of. Then you are going to see there are jobs. That's an extreme example with Mother Teresa. There are jobs that can change your life completely. Completely. And other chakras adapted to the circumstances. For example, you may be painting. I saw a lady painting Choose Evolution on the wall of the restaurant and so on. You are going to think, hey, I'm not Michelangelo paying the Sistine Chapel here. No, but you can think you are Michelangelo paying, painting the Sistine Chapel. Because even if you pay a C and an H, that's a masterpiece. It can be done like Leonardo da Vinci. Like try to think how would have Leonardo da Vinci painted Choose Evolution on the wall of Agama. It can be done with Vishuddha. It can be done with aesthetical sense. It can be done by putting something into it. Brancusi, the founder of the modern sculpture, he carved some marble eggs and some very simple forms. And people said, what is this? And somebody who went into his lab near Paris found out that some of those stones were warm. And he said, this is warm. And Brancusi said, of course it's warm because it's alive. And he said, what do you mean this stone is alive? He said, I've been looking at it for 24 hours and charging it with life. Like for him, his sculptures, even when it was just an egg shape, they were alive. They were a masterpiece. They came from pure creativity. That's why his work is hard to equal until today. Just in case you are interested in sculpture, try to study the origins of modern sculpture and you'll find this crazy guy uh, in the history there. And try to find karma yoga possibilities for consecration. Part of your job can be transformed in karma yoga. You are a medical doctor, and you are preparing to perform surgery. Well, if you are performing major surgery on somebody, it could be a matter of life and death as well. So why don't you perform a prayer and a consecration before you are performing the surgery? This is a spiritual act. You are doing some yoga through it. 
let's continue that you are going to some R and R. You are going in the middle of nature, rest and recreation, such as you can experience increased amounts of prana in the nature and in the mountains. For example, I discovered that when you sit under a fir tree, a big fir tree, the amount of prana is increased. And I have discovered and I consulted with other yogis that the fir trees act like antennas for the cosmic energy. And they have a way of distributing the cosmic energy exactly to the shape of the fir tree. It's a little bit of a pyramid effect that happens under a fir tree in a specific way. So, for example, if you go and do pranayama under a fir tree, you're going to have greater results. You can recharge with prana. You have spent eight hours per day in a plastic office where there is no prana. Then you are going under a fir tree and doing a bit of deep breathing and pranayama, and you are recharging amazingly. Or you could be absorbing energy from the sun. I'm sure a lot of you are going to the beach. If you go to the beach that concentrate on the sun, do sun salutations, do supta vajrasana, lie on the back and focus on the fact that the energy of the sun goes right in in your Manipura chakra. Like do some conscious work on the sun. Connect with the sun. And then it's a different story. You are actually absorbing consciously huge amounts of energy so I, I knew people, I had friends in yoga who would always be seeking for the sun and charging from the sun. I especially had a good friend who was a Leo astrologically. And in astrology, Leo is the sun, the astrological sign dominated by the sun. This guy was like an addict to the sun. Whenever there was sunshine, he would go in the sunshine and try to absorb as much sunshine as possible. For him, sunshine was like a vitamin. It was like a drug that he was absorbing from the universe because there is so much prana in the sunshine and often we are tired and wasted <coughs> and we sleep in the daytime and we stay up in the night time and we don't absorb the prana of the sun and actually the prana of the sun is very, very useful. We could play different when you are in resting. You could play different yogic games such as one of the classical ones in tantric yoga environments, are the practice of identification. You can identify with a tree, you can identify with a sea, you can find a colleague or a friend and hold hands and make a practice of identification. Like, why waste time? When you go to the beach, aren't you getting bored? Many people are getting bored on the beach and they try to use a book, a magazine, a tablet, or something just to keep their mind busy. Or just to find a friend and chit-chat endlessly. But instead of doing these things just to waste time, you could use that time. Remember, by the way of the beach that we say this, that the beach is a privileged place. Because on the beach you are with the feet in the sand, which is earth. So you are directly in contact with the earth element. There is abundant presence of the sea, which is water, tons of water. So the water element is strong. If it's a sunny day, there is a lot of sunshine, which is the fire element, which is abundant, sometimes a bit too much. And you are almost naked. You are in a swimsuit or in some privileged places, even naked. And your body is breathing through all the pores of the skin. And the breeze is blowing. And the air element is strong. 
What an amazing place the beach is. Earth, water, fire, air, all the first four elements. The science of yoga says if you have equal and big amounts of the four elements, then automatically you have the fifth element present because it results from the balance of the first four. So the beach is an excellent place as balance of energy, as place to feel the energies of nature and to recharge your batteries. You are going to some viewing shows in the evening, in this imaginary day. You did some rest in the afternoon, went in the nature. Then in the evening, let's say you go to a viewing show, a theater, a circus, a cinema. You are going to some show of some kind. And when you go to shows, you can have two attitudes. You can be receptive, which means you try to feel the dominant chakra of that show. Like... Let's say you are seeing a movie with Richard Gere. What's the dominant chakra of Richard Gere? No, then you can find out. And so you can absorb a chakra and you say, wow, this movie had a wonderful muladhara. Like I, I watched Baraka or something like this, some visual festival, some visual feast. Or you can, so you can be receptive and get some chakra. Here in Agama, we are an almost a video yoga school because we give lots of videos as exemplification in certain retreats and workshops. Like when we do the Vira workshop, the complete femininity workshop, when we want to teach men about masculinity on Muladhara, on Zvadistana, on Manipura, on Anahata, on Vishur, we are showing them images from movies where it's directly presented. And then if you are receptive, you can... Learn it. Yes, somebody said Richard Gere is on Svadistana. Sure, any man who would look carefully at American Gigolo, the Richard Gere movie, will develop a more harmonious and deeper Svadistana. It's as simple as that. Like there are men who can be clumsy nerds, and then all the girls in the school complain by the typical tantric nerd of Agama, who goes to a girl and says, I want to do tantra with you. And the girls say, yeah, I am here to try to do Tantra. Fundamentally, I am interested, but not like that. You know, it's like no, nobody makes me make love by just coming and say, I want to do Tantra to you. It's like somebody needs to talk to me, to joke with me, to make me feel relaxed and comfortable. You know, it's like there is an art of seduction, you know, and so on. Well, perhaps some man need to learn that, even from a movie. And that's why I say uh, you can go to viewing shows on a receptive way, like I have to learn something from here, or in an emissive way, like I want to give something, I want to influence the environment. Like I'm going to a football match, there are 80,000 people who are shouting their lungs off for Manchester United, and approximately 99% of them are morons. And I would like to go on that stadium like Peter, the Apostle of Christ, and give them a blessing, for God's sake, you know. Those people, those drunk football hooligans, they need a blessing. They need a lot of... So can I go in a collective event like this and just give something, make a good consecration, and transmit a good energy? Like, I want to bring my one penny contribution. Okay, I'm not Jesus 
I cannot walk on water. I cannot multiply bread and fishes and stuff like this. Can I at least bring some good energy into an event where people are a bit confused or not spiritual enough or something? Can I? Yes, you can. That's more difficult that already you have to be good in yoga to be able to give some energy. Or parties. You are participating into a party. And into a party as a yogi, sometimes you discover that the energies are not very spiritual. I know lots of yogis who prefer to stay in their bungalow and never to join parties. Like, there are many, many yogis, and funny, some of them come to me in the office hours, and they say, Swami, I'm a totally isolated animal. Socializing drives me crazy. I don't like people. I don't like parties. I feel good in my bungalow. I like to read books, to meditate, to do hatha yoga. Is it wrong? And I'm telling them, there's nothing wrong. You are halfway on the road to Milarepa. Like, you are in yoga, why would you feel guilty that you stay in your house all day long and practice yoga? Maybe that's why you are here. Maybe you are the next great spiritual hero of this island, or of this planet, or of this country. So, there's nothing wrong in it. But sometimes, some people need to join into some social events. And still, they don't like the energy. They really don't like the energy. They say, oh, I went there. Everybody was Vadistanistic. Everybody, they played some of this Vadistana Manipura pop music, disco music, and they danced their heads off. And I couldn't see anything spiritual in anybody, you know. There was nobody who turned into a goddess or into a demigod or something. It was a very profane atmosphere. So what would you do? No, if you are into a party, what would a yogi do into a party? I have been taken by one of my teachers, by one of my gurus, a couple of times, I think, to a disco, to a normal disco, to an ordinary disco, which had nothing to do with yoga. People were smoking, drinking, everything. And I stayed in a corner. I was not even very good at dancing. I had nothing to do there, together with three, four other friends from yoga. And we're staying, and what do you do? The defensive atmosphere is that you could do a protection technique. You could just put a protection aura. We teach in Agama some three forms of protection technique. You could try the efficiency of your protection techniques. Like I'm in a corrosive environment which I don't like. And I'm trying to see if I can stay here two hours, quiet, peaceful, centered, without being affected by the madness which is happening just five meters from me. That's a way of testing yourself. Or... There exists a more vira, a more heroic, bold way, a more tantric way of doing these things, such as, for example, absorbing all this vadistanistic, muladharistic, low energy, but then you have to have a really good manipura, because it's exactly like you are taking garbage, and you have to burn it. You have to have a furnace inside and burn it. So basically, you can take a lot of energy, which people... It's not vampirism. You are not stealing energy from people. People are giving it anyway. Remember the example of the woman full of vitality, who says, oh, I have so much energy, I have been at the full moon party, and I danced until 5 o'clock in the morning. You could have helped two dying people in Mother Teresa's with that energy. You chose to dance it off. 
I'm not condemning anybody for doing that. I'm just making an act of lucidity. Like there are people who have so much energy, probably they don't make karma yoga enough, probably they don't make love enough, and then because they have too much energy and still don't know what to do with it, they go to the Shiva moon party and they dance until 4 o'clock in the morning. Who got anything out of it? You got tired, exhausted, you've discharged your energy, you feel relieved, and that energy has gone somewhere. What most people don't know is that in these collective parties, there are subtle entities, invisible spirits, that suck people's energy, because people give it willingly. Like in the moment when you sweat it off, somebody is going to take it. Don't think it's just going in the thin air like this. There is an economy in this universe. If you poop, the ants are going to get your poop and transport it in their house. They are using it for something. Everything in nature is being used, is being reused, recycled. If you go to a disco and dance until you drop, the demons, I'm, it's a hard word, but the demons will make you feel good, like come next Saturday also, will make you feel good, guaranteed, you know, and you've donated 90% of your blood, of your energy, and somebody is going out of the disco with a full stomach. No, you have donated. You have been a generous donor. The yogis don't want to be donors for chaotic entities somewhere in the world. They simply say, why would I want to donate my ojas, my vitality, my life force, just because I need some entertainment, because I have so much energy that I'm exploding with it. I can do karma yoga until 3 o'clock in the morning if I have so much energy and help somebody do something spiritual with it not just shake it off until my, my feet are hurting. That's pretty unintelligent, really. It's something which is being done, but is not the intelligent way. Many of my gurus were very partial to these kinds of things. And some of them, uh, one of my tantric teachers, taught me this. He simply said, if you want to help the people, there is a way. You go there, you open to them... You start absorbing all this energy, which is garbage. You burn it, you distillate it. It's like a refinery inside you. You bring this energy to the third eye, and you give it back like golden yellow light. You shine. I have done this into parties. And by 12 o'clock, people were sitting down with a glass of beer in their hand, and they were talking about reincarnation. Like the party had become just a philosophical uh, gathering. I spoiled the party by sucking all the vital energy and moving it here and giving it back. And now people were feeling inspired. Suddenly there was a blog happening. There was a blog on reincarnation. Everybody was talking. I wonder, I heard somewhere that perhaps we reincarnate. Yeah, and so on. Obviously it gave me the opportunity to put some two remarks into the discussion, guiding discreetly the discussion to, into better places. From the standpoint of the party, it has been a cruel joke because I kind of screwed the party. But from the standpoint of the life of those people, it was a gift. You can, your presence can spiritualize a cinema hall or a party or a disco or a gathering 
if you really want to spiritualize things and if you don't let them run you, but you run them. You take initiative and become the one person awake in that environment. I'm telling you, we have been in groups of 10, 20 in such environments and we have tried to do these things and we have seen how it works. So, like, here we have the full moon party and the other ones, you know. It's excellent to just go and suck some energy and see what it is. And then maybe the next morning you come from there with a yoga disciple already. You've got somebody who, instead of getting stoned and banging their head on the asphalt, they come to learn yoga. So it's like, it's a matter of how you want to use your daily life. What do you want to do with your time on earth? The same thing can be said, I'm going to stop now, of watching TV. No, like I'm watching videos quite a bit. And I'm selecting. And I have a directory on one of my hard drives, which is a very big directory, which is called Waste of Time. Like, I have movies, I have hundreds of movies, which I dumped into the waste of time directory. Like, I wouldn't recommend to anybody, if I wasted my time, I wouldn't recommend to anybody to watch those and waste their times. But I have found movies that activate your Ajna Chakra. I have found movies which activate your Vishuddha Chakra. I have found movies which strongly, strongly open your heart chakra. And therefore, there is something in TV film, even in reading books. Some of our pupils here in Agama are doing a tapas on the chakras. And when they do the tapas of Manipura chakra, there is a book which has become a classic. I recommended it and I said, you want to see what a good Manipura chakra is? Read this book. It's a 1200 page book, like it's a mammoth novel. It's a novel. It's literature. But it's so good for your Manipura chakra. Just a book, and you are having some fun time and reading a novel, and when you finish it, you say, okay, now I understand Manipura Chakra and its relationship with Vadistana Chakra and how normal people think and how Manipura Chakra people think and all that. You'll understand it immediately, just from reading a book. A book can be a great support in yoga if it's a book which is well chosen. I have read a lot of books, which I would put them on a shelf called Waste of Time. Exactly as my directory of video movies. So in this way, I have already given you an example from an imaginary day where you go to job, you go to a movie, you go to a party, you go to a viewing show, and so on. And everywhere where you are, you are a yogi. And because you are a yogi, you are doing some yogic stuff. Because that's your sweet obsession. You want to live it out. You want yoga to be part of your life. It's not only in the yoga hall. I'm going to continue next time by speaking about couple techniques. Like, let's say your life is fortunate enough that you have a partner. You have a lover. You have somebody, a friend. You could do couple techniques. Being with somebody gives you increased opportunities to do that. And then, as I told you, there are other and other opportunities of life, other events of life. Like, for example, what is happening if you're going to visit Troy? It is alleged that the ancient city of Troy is somewhere on the coast of Turkey today. 
and people are going to visit a 3,000 year old city. Or if you go to Athens in Greece and you visit the Pantheon, the famous Pantheon. As a yogi, what can you do there? What's an archaeological place which has been there for 3,000 years? Why is it characterized by and all that? And thus, I'm going to comment in the coming lectures other such events where you can use the skills from yoga, where you can live out your yoga teachings and where sometimes you can make a difference and you can do great things. You have seen that also I am of the opinion that you should use the daily life as training. It's a challenge. You have a job that can develop your Muladhara, your Svadhisthana, your Manipura, your Anahata, your Vishuddha, your Ajna. Use it. It's an opportunity. If life gave you such a job, it means it could be in your karma that you develop that. So then why should I refuse the things of life when they can actually develop something for me? In this way, we will continue in the coming, let's see if there will be one or two sessions, until I finish this idea of how to bring skills from yoga in your daily life. After that, we will change the subject. Enough for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining this satsang. I'll see you in the coming weeks as I continue with bringing yoga in the daily life.